They say life insurance is like a parachute. If you don't have it the first time, odds are you won't need it again. Hi, I'm Rob West. A funny line, but all kidding aside, life insurance is the only way most people can provide for their families if they should die. But what happens when it ends? I'll talk about that first today, and then it's on to your calls at 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. This is Faith and Finance Live, biblical wisdom for your financial decisions. Of course, we're talking about term life insurance here, which we almost always recommend. It's far cheaper than whole life and doesn't mix investing with a death benefit. You're much better off investing separately from an insurance policy. Now, term insurance, by definition, ends when the term expires. And we often get this question from listeners. What then? Well, generally, you have four options. The first is to simply let the policy lapse. If you had a 20-year policy that's ending, at this stage of your life, it's quite possible that you no longer need life insurance. If the kids are grown and out of the house, supporting themselves and your spouse's income plus Social Security survivor benefits is sufficient, then life insurance is a needless expense that you can put to better use in your retirement account. But if you still have dependents who rely on your income or a spouse whose income can't meet expenses, then you still need to have some type of term policy. And that leaves you with three more options. The next is to get a completely new term policy when the current one expires. We normally recommend one with a death benefit of 10 to 12 times your salary. Don't be surprised by how much more a new policy at this later stage in life will cost. A 50-year-old healthy male can expect to pay around $80 a month for a 20-year $500,000 policy or around four times the cost for a 30-year-old. That's simply based on actuarial tables. It's nothing personal. Of course, if the policy is only to provide for your spouse and not dependent children, you may be able to get by with less. For example, a policy that would pay off just the remaining principal on your mortgage, if any. And while the cost of a new policy might have given you sticker shock, it's usually less than you'll have to pay to simply extend your existing policy, which is another option. Why is that, you may be asking? Well, if you decide to get a new policy, you'll have to go through all of the underwriting procedures you did at age 30, a medical exam giving an extensive medical history, blood test, and so on. When all of that is complete, the insurance company has a pretty good idea of the risk it's taking on. Okay, so let's say you go through all of that and you're approved for a new term policy, but the monthly premiums are too high. Well, you have a few ways to bring them down. You can lower the death benefit. Instead of $500,000, maybe you can get by with just $250,000. The company may encourage you to buy more insurance than is necessary, so you have to keep your own needs in mind. You can also lower the term. Instead of getting a new 20-year policy, maybe you can get by with a 10-year term. Again, just long enough to get the mortgage paid off, for example. And you can save up and opt to pay your premiums annually instead of monthly. Some companies will give you up to a 5% discount for making a yearly lump sum payment. Your next option for when your term insurance policy expires is you can simply extend it. 
If you decide to go that route, there's usually no medical workup required. But since the insurer is going into this blind with no idea of any medical conditions that may have arisen in the past 20 years, the premiums will be higher than you'd have with a new policy, sometimes a lot higher. But keep in mind, if you have developed a serious medical condition, you may not be able to get a new policy at all. In that case, extending your current policy is definitely the way to go if you can afford it. If you can't, it leaves you with your last option, getting what's called a simplified term or instant issue policy. As you might guess, an instant issue policy requires no medical checkup. You apply, you're approved, and you start paying premiums. And usually you can do all of that online. Now, if you're thinking that sounds too good to be true, there must be a catch. Actually, there are three. First, the death benefit with this type of term policy tends to be smaller. Second, the term is likely to be shorter. And three, it probably will cost a lot more than a regular term policy that includes a medical exam. But for some folks, an instant issue policy could be a real blessing when their current term policy expires. All right, I hope that was helpful. Your calls are next, 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. I'm Rob West, and this is Faith and Finance Live. We'll be right back. God owns it all, therefore we're stewards, so money's a tool to accomplish God's purposes. That's what we talk about on this program each day as we allow the wisdom from God's Word, the timeless, transcendent wisdom and principles to apply to your financial decisions and choices, the things you're thinking about right now related to God's money. We'd love to hear from you today with whatever is on your mind. We've got some lines open and I'm ready to go. 800-525-7000 is the number to call. That's 800 800- 525-7000. Our team is standing by. Uh, let's begin today in Wisconsin. Todd, you'll be our first caller, sir. Go right ahead. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I was looking into fin- refinancing my home, and um, I kind of went on Credit Karma, and they recommended a few financial companies, but I was just wondering if it's safe to do online and how do you know that these companies are legitimate? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, what I would do, I mean, Credit Karma is certainly one option. Lending Tree is another. Uh, you will find that these online banks and lenders tend to have better rates and terms. And so it's worth shopping around, you know, because this is the largest transaction most of us will ever have. It's important for us to have multiple offers. Uh, what we find is that on average, the a- a typical person will only get one uh, lender to weigh in. And I I think that's a mistake. Uh, a couple of thoughts. Number one is, um, you know, you can look to see, uh, first of all, um, what the rating is of the particular institution. And keep in mind, it's probably going to be sold anyway to another servicer. So it's really, you know, the lender's 
uh, not a, of a primary concern. Uh, as long as they're you know willing to do the deal and and they give you good customer service along the way, you understand you know the truth in lending disclosure and exactly what it's going to cost you, and they'll work with you on a timely basis. And you know, internet reviews can be a great resource there just to determine that they are going to do what they say they're going to do on a timely basis. But once you get to closing, from that point forward, your servicer can change, uh, and so it's really not a, a main concern uh, who the actual lender is that's going to get you to the closing table, uh, because that's probably not who you're going to be working with moving forward. So I think for that reason, certainly if you have an existing banking relationship, you certainly could check with those folks just to see what they're offering. But I would absolutely compare it to at least two other lenders that you would look for online at either a Credit Karma uh, or uh, you could use uh, LendingTree. And I think, you know, as you shop around, you'll find uh, some great options. Let me also encourage you to visit uh, with our friends at Movement Mortgage. This is a a faith-based company that is nationwide, and um, you should at least uh, check them out as well. They're really uh, trying to redefine the mortgage process, and uh, it's all built on biblical principles. If you uh, go to movement.com forward slash faith, you can learn more uh, about Movement Mortgage, and I would certainly put them in the mix as well. Is that helpful? Yes, it is. Okay. Movement.com, you said? Forward slash faith uh, for faith and finance. Yeah, movement.com forward slash faith. But you shop around, Todd, see what you can find, and uh, if we can help you further along the way, sir, uh, let us know. God bless you, and thanks for checking with us today. 800-525-7000 with a few lines open to Fort Lauderdale. Hi, Albert. Go right ahead, sir. Yes. Good evening, uh, Brother Rob West. Uh, Myself and my wife is retired, and... uh, well, our distribution from our IRA was 5000 2022. Interest from our savings was 4000 That's a total of 9000 Social Security, we received between both of us a total of 35000 Now, what is income and what is not? What is taxable and what is not? Sure. Uh, so Social Security is taxable, and a lot of that is uh, going to be determined by uh, your total income. Uh, so, you know, what you will find is that typically when you get above the $32,000 threshold for a married couple, that's where you're going to be taxed on up to 85% of your Social Security benefits. So it is ultimately going to come down to what is your total combined income as to the percentage of your Social Security that will be taxed. Well, the the only income, as I said, that we have is interest from the savings in the bank and uh, distribution that we have to take out each year for IRA, and that adds up to $9,000. Okay. And then you'd have your Social Security benefit on top of that. What is the amount you're receiving there? Total is 43982 Okay. Yeah. So that, that is going to, you know, cause those benefits to be taxable. So what I would do is check with your uh, CPA or tax preparer just to determine exactly, you know, what percentage of your benefits will be taxable based on your combined income, the the various, uh, you know, sources that you described, plus Social Security on top of that, and they can give you a good idea of, of exactly what that's going to be based on the current marginal rates. Do you normally prepare your own return or do you have uh, somebody do that? 
that for you? No, I normally have, uh, you know, uh, one of the uh, tax, uh, you know, company does it. But, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, I haven't really filed tax in the last probably, let's say, five years, because when, the last time I did it there, they said that my income was not enough, so I shouldn't, you know, be filing tax anymore. Okay, yeah. And, and so conflicting, conflicting information, so I just want to make sure I'm on the right track. Sure, sure. Yeah, so between 25000 and 34000 uh, you may have to pay uh, income tax on up to 50% of your benefits. More than thirty five. that's when it goes up to 85%. So it, it sounds like it could be that you're, in fact, below that, and that's what they're describing there, because you're staying essentially under the standard deduction with all the income that you have. But uh, always a good idea to check in with your tax preparer just to look at your total situation and to determine exactly what you need to be planning for so it doesn't catch you by surprise. Albert, thanks for checking in with us today, sir. 800-525-7000 is the number to call. Quickly to Lakeland. Hi, Katie. Go right ahead. Hi there, Rob. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks. Good. I've got a question. I bought a Harley last year, and my interest rate that I'm paying is about 11.14 interest rate. My credit score is excellent. I have an 823 on Experian on um, TransUnion at 818. And I'm going through the dealership for financing. My question to you is, should I refinance this? Credit Karma says I can get a loan cheaper, and um, it's going to be almost the same entirety to pay off that loan. So I, I'm trying to make the payments, but I'm trying to make them in a shorter amount of time. I can't double up payments because I can't afford it, but I want to at least make the payments I'm making right now so that way I can continue to tithe and do my due diligence to continue to stay up with my, with my budget. Yeah, I would definitely shop around. If you have a high uh, credit score, you know, that's a pretty high rate. Uh, You should be able to get down below 10 for sure on a street bike today, probably 9.5% with excellent credit. So the key is going to be the total cost of the interest on your current loan versus the reduced interest plus the cost to refinance. You're just going to have to compare those two. So I'd get two to three lenders involved in competing bids for what you might be able to refinance to. Look at the total cost of the interest on the new loan at the lower rate. Add to it the cost of the refinance itself and compare that to your current loan to see if it makes sense. Thanks for calling, Katie. God bless you. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Taking your questions, applying God's wisdom from the Bible to your financial decisions and choices. That's what we do here on this program. This is Faith and Finance Live. I'm Rob West. The number to call today is 800-525-7000. We've got some lines open. We'd love to hear from you. Let's head to Cleveland, Ohio. Teresa, thank you for calling today. Go right ahead. Hi, my question is, do I... I have a question where I have to figure out, I'm trying to get a debt consolidation or a refinance on my home, my I owe 68000 and I'm trying to figure out, do I go with the 68000 or do I, is it better for me to refinance and get a lower interest rate on all my debts, and I'm trying to consolidate? 
Okay. Let's talk about that, Teresa. So you mentioned a $68,000 debt. Is that combined debt from various places, or is that one debt that you owe? It's one debt. It's on my house. Okay. But I just picked up a, I picked up a car loan, and I'm trying to get a refinance through a credit union right now, my credit union, but they're running the credit now to see if they could do it. But if not, they, this person held me at 21000 He lied to me and told me it would be only 10%, and it's not. I found it's 21%. For the car loan? He just wanted the car sale. Yes. Wow. Wow. And what is your credit score, Teresa? Do you know? It was 645. Now it's 618. Okay. All right. What uh, what other debt do you have besides the sixty eight thousand on your house and the car loan of twenty one thousand? Not that much. Just a little bit. I had a um, Home Depot card of one thousand, and this the rest of them tiny. It's nothing okay. more. I okay. got one five thousand dollar loan. That's it. After that, it's nothing okay. else. And what is the interest rate on your house? Um, five percent. Okay. All right. And how many years do you have left on that mortgage? Uh, it's supposed to be when I turned, I'm supposed to be retired when I turned, um, actually 58. It should have been two years, but I got into a bad situation listening to somebody, and it's at 68, but the house was 90000 when I purchased it. So it's down to 68, so I'm trying to figure out how to get it down further where I could, or should I just wait till I'm dead and they pay it off? <laughs> I'm trying to yeah. figure out which way to go. Well, can you afford the monthly payment for the mortgage, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance in your current budget? Yes, I pay it every okay. month. Yes, on okay, time. Okay, great. So here's the thing. I, I don't want you to refinance, Teresa. Number one, it's going to reset that term. Now, you could shorten the term, and that would be what I would do if I refinance, but there's really not any benefit of you refinancing. I don't want you to increase uh, you know, the, the balance that you owe on the house, and if you roll the car loan in, you'd be taking a loan that's secured only by a car, and now you're putting your home at risk. So if something were to come out of left field unforeseen and you're not able to make the payment, now you've just put your primary residence in jeopardy. And so I'd rather you stay with that uh, current mortgage, which is at a good rate. It would probably go higher if you were to refinance, given your credit score and where rates are at right now. Not to mention, you know, you'd probably pay around 4% just in the cost of the refinance. So that's $2,700 just in fees and expenses to do the refinance. So I'd stay right where you're at. Make sure you keep that payment paid every month. And let's focus on refinancing that car loan. And I think where you need to go from here is to probably, you know, shop around. I'd go to bankrate.com and find other lenders that would be willing to compete for your business to refinance that car loan, which is at a ridiculous interest rate right now. And I'm so sorry to hear that you were taken advantage of, but we've got to get that down. And the good news is there's, there are lower rates. Now, if you had a high credit score, you you could get that down to around 9%. You're still going to be up in the teens, but certainly much better than 21. So we need to try to get that refinance. And then the key from that point forward will be to limit your lifestyle spending, your monthly expenses as much as possible so that you can free up as much margin as possible. And I want you to attack that car loan with every available dollar, assuming you have an emergency fund of at least one month's expenses. And if you do, then I'd focus 
focus every available dollar on getting that uh, car loan paid off at this point. But I wouldn't refinance the mortgage and roll it in. I'd just refinance the car loan as a new car loan. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay. I, I was nervous. I didn't know. I just want to be sure because I know you give good. I listen to you every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad every to hear day. it. I can't get in. I said, I can get in. I can get some good we, advice. <laughs> you are the uh, you're our number one fan today, Teresa. So uh, you, listen, let's do this. You hang on the line. We'll send you a gift just for being so sweet and for uh, calling today. I want to send you a copy of Ron Blue's book, Master Your Money. It's, it was a blessing in my life when I was getting started in this whole intersection of faith and finance, and I know it will be to you as well. So you stay on the line. We'll get your information and get that right out to you. Thanks for calling today. Uh, quickly to St. Louis. Hi, Charlotte. How can I help you? Oh, hi. Yes, I am uh, 75 years old, and I'm thinking about I want to get my home put into my kids' name, out of my name and into their name. And what is the best way to do that without them having to pay a bunch of taxes on it? Well, there wouldn't, be, there wouldn't be any taxes, but you might miss what we call the stepped-up basis, which has to do with the capital gains that are paid when it's sold. What are you trying to accomplish, Charlotte? Is it just the efficient transfer of the asset at your death? Uh, yes, or, or maybe now before I even die. But but what is the benefit of putting it in their name now? What is it you're trying to accomplish uh, well, by doing this? Well, I thought maybe it would be simpler is all. That's the only thing. Is it no, better to go wait until I... It, it really is Not better to wait more. until the Lord calls you home, because here's the reality is right now, if you were to transfer it in their name, it would be considered a gift that would not be taxable unless the house is more than $12 million. Uh, but it's not going to allow the basis to be stepped up. So if they inherit it at your death, the cost basis, which determines whether there's a profit when it's sold, is going to be stepped up to the market value as of the date of your death. If you gift it to them by just doing a quick claim deed, they're going to retain your cost basis, which means when they sell it, they've got to uh, subtract the original purchase price from the selling price, and then they'll have to pay capital gains tax. So for that reason, I'd rather just you have an updated will or perhaps look at a trust to transfer this asset, and you could check with a godly estate planning attorney about it, but I wouldn't transfer it to them now. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I know that how this works all weekend. You had a financial question kind of rolling around in your mind. You've been contemplating it, maybe praying over it, and you just need a sounding board to run it by. Well, we'd love to be that today. If you have a question, you'd like to join us on the broadcast today. The number to call is 800-525-7000. We've got some lines open. That's 800-525-7000. We'll be taking those calls over the remainder of the broadcast. Plus, coming up at the in the next segment, Bob Dahl will check in with his weekly market commentary. Tell us what he's looking at and thinking at about this week as it relates to the markets and the economy. Uh, that's coming up 
in just a bit. Again, 800-525-7000. Before we head back to the phones, here we are nearly at the end of the month. And as a listener-supported ministry, staying on budget every month is key for us to continue to do the work that the Lord has called us to. And so if you'd like to uh, become a financial supporter of this ministry with your chari- uh, with your tax-deductible gift, we'd certainly appreciate that, whether you become a uh, monthly supporter or with a one-time gift. It would go a long way toward helping us meet our monthly goals here in the month of February and uh, continuing to do the ministry that we have here at Faith and Finance. So if you just head to our website, faithfi.com, that's faithfi.com, and click Give if you've found some benefit in the work that we do here on this radio broadcast and the other ministry resources we make available, we'd certainly appreciate it. Again, faithfi.com, just click Give, and thanks in advance. All right, back to the phones we go. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Tracy, thank you for calling. Go right ahead. Hey, how you doing today? I'm well, thank you. I'm glad you took my call. Listen, I'm going to try to make it as brief as I possibly can. Okay. Um, I, be- I believe in paying tithe, yeah. but I've had, I had in the past a really bad experience. So I listened to you guys, and I listened to another a couple of faith-based channels, but I just yeah. I don't trust people anymore. So I and my God has been telling me, you know, you need to pay your tithes, but I don't have a church. Um, I've been in Chattanooga now for a minute, but I have not found a church home. So I decided today to just call you and to see, you know, what your opinion would be, you know, about somebody like me. I know I should be paying the tithes, but I just don't trust anybody, and I don't think that they're going to do what they're supposed to do with the money that God has blessed me to govern. Yeah. So I don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just first encourage you. God doesn't need our money. He wants our hearts. He's always been about our hearts. And giving is one of the ways that we calibrate our hearts to the Father out of an overflow of gratitude for what God has done for us by, first of all, sending His Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin through the substitutionary atonement on the cross and His resurrection, that we might be adopted into His family. Out of gratitude for that, we say, God, I want to be a part of what you're doing. And one of the ways I can do that is taking a portion of what you've entrusted to me, because it all belongs to you, and redirecting it back as an act of worship, as a demonstration of my trust, as really uh, an understanding that God's provision is complete and sufficient, and the joy that comes from being a part of God's activity, connected into His work, whether that's through the local church or around the globe. Now, how do we go about that? Well, I think it starts with giving systematically and proportionately, using the principle of the tithe as a great starting point to the local church. That was God's plan A. doesn't mean that the local church is perfect, but it does mean it was ordained by God as a part of how we as a community of believers come together Uh, not a physical building, but the joining together of God's people in service to Him to edify and build one another up, but also to take the gospel to our communities and to the ends of the earth. And we should support the work of the local church. We see that clearly in the Old Testament law, but we also see that modeled in Acts and the New Testament and various places that we should be supporting God's work. Now, I think it's really important, uh, Tracy, that you find a local fellowship and 
it sounds like you're certainly looking in that way. Hebrews 3 tells us specifically to guard our hearts lest they become hardened and exhort one another to remain faithful. Well, I think that's difficult to do if you're not a part of the body of Christ in a local church fellowship. And when you find that church home, you can absolutely begin to give systematically and proportionately a tithe, uh, which means a tenth, to that local church. In the meantime, where do you give? Well, I would just ask the Lord to lead you. Could be that you give a weekly tithe as you visit a church, because uh, I would make it a priority to be visiting churches there in Chattanooga. And I happen to know there's some wonderful churches there in Chattanooga. And as you visit, perhaps you give a tithe. Maybe you take and direct that as the Lord leads to another ministry that while you're looking for a new church home is God has, is using to build you up in your faith. Maybe that's one of the teaching ministries here on Moody Radio. Um, but I think the key is for you to look in earnest for that place that God would plant you so you can get involved and invested, be a part of the body of Christ in a local fellowship, and be a faithful giver in whatever the way the Lord leads while you're looking, and ultimately when you find that new church home as a faithful and active giver. Does that all make sense, though? Yeah, what you just said made plenty. Make I listen to you guys all the time. Like I said, you make plenty of sense. But can you tell me how to get me out of the way so I can actually do what I'm supposed to do? Because I'm scared. To be honest yeah. with you, I'm just scared. You know, yeah. and yeah. Um, I'm sure that you've had many people to call and say, "Well, you know, I've dealt with this. I've dealt with that." And um, I know that the money belongs to God, but I'm just I'm like, "Well, God, it belongs to you." Why am I governing over it? Because you know I'm not worthy of governing over it. I don't make the best decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the key is to renew your mind here, Tracy, and to be in God's Word, to remind yourself of His promises, to not buy into the cultural worldview of money, which would tell you, well, it's built on materialism, encouraging you to spend all that you have, to be discontent with what you have, to measure your self-worth according to your net worth. None of that uh, follows a biblical worldview. It also can lead to to fear, the whole what-if game. And fear is ultimately a demonstration uh, of a lack of trust in God and His provision. Uh, Often fear comes from the what-if. You know, I play that what-if game that makes me think about what can go wrong in the future. The problem is we can't see the future, and uh, we would worry about it uh, even if we could. And so that worry then leads to fear, and that's ultimately a spiritual trap. It's the opposite of trust. Well, the antidote to that is God's Word, because we remind ourselves that Jesus has overcome the world. Uh, God is in control of the details. The enemy wants us to worry about what we might lose. But in Christ, Tracy, you and I know that we gain so much more. So I think we can be confident that we can trust God with our future and claim 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit uh, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so what I'd like to do is send you, um, it's a Bible, actually, uh, a full, a complete Old and New Testament. Uh, it's called the Stewardship Bible. And our friends at the American Bible Society, along with Compass Finances God's Way, uh, actually publish this Bible, and every passage related to money is highlighted in green. 
And what I'd love to challenge you to do in the coming days and months, uh, Tracy, is just begin to meditate on God's Word and read those passages in green in particular, and see if God doesn't give you perhaps a, a new vision for what it looks like to trust Him completely, to get to, to replace fear with faith, and ultimately to be able to be a generous giver wherever God plants you in the days ahead. How does that sound? Did we lose you? Nope. I said that's not Okay, great. Well, listen, uh, God bless you, Tracy. We'll be praying for you. You stay on the line. We'll get your information and get that Bible right out to you. We're going to take a quick break and we come back much more on Faith and Finance Live just around the corner. Stay with us. We're so thankful you tuned in to Faith and Finance Live here on Moody Radio. I'm Rob West. We're taking your calls and questions today, but it's a Monday, which means we have the distinct privilege of talking to our good friend, Bob Dahl. Bob is Chief Investment Officer at Crossmark Global Investments. And well, if you're ever wondering what the market's doing or the economy, uh, I'm often wondering that myself, which is why I rely on the Dahl's deliberations, his weekly investment commentary each week. And you can sign up for your own copy delivered to your inbox at crossmarkglobal.com. Bob, good afternoon, sir. Happy Monday. (laughs) Happy Monday. Bob, so much in your Dolls Deliberations this week. Uh, We'll just touch on a few of the big themes. Uh, One of them is this idea of the the Fed pivot that a lot of folks have been talking about. Now, you believe we may see a pivot this year, but the pivot you're talking about perhaps is a little different than what most people are. Explain that. Sure. Uh, the a, a, a common wisdom about a pivot is the Fed stops raising rates and we put our eyes on when they go lower rates later yeah. in the year. Our suggestion is maybe the pivot is Instead of insisting on 2% inflation, which they have done ad nauseum, maybe they compromise and say, maybe three is good enough. The world's changed for a lot of reasons, and three might be acceptable. That would be a big pivot. Yeah, it sure would. Bob, give us some perspective on that. I mean, obviously, we know inflation, uh, when you're when you're growing, you have an economy that's growing, you're going to have some inflation. That's just a part of it. But is there some significance to that 2% number? And as things can tend to settle, settle in at a higher number, let's say three, what are the longer term implications for that? So, Rob, the the decade prior to the recent rise in inflation, starting roughly a year ago, inflation was almost nonstop below two, primarily between one and two, occasionally even below one. So that's where the two came from. Long term in the U.S., inflation is closer to three, uh, meaning over many decades. Uh, And because some things have changed, demographics The end, uh, at least temporarily, of globalization, which is a a, a big dampener on inflation. These are some of the reasons why the Fed might say, you know, three may be more realistic for the environment in which we find ourselves. And that's a big difference from two. The the implications are, obviously, interest rates are a little higher if inflation is three rather than two. And the price-earnings ratio, valuation on stocks, is a little lower at 3% inflation rather than two. They'd be big adjustments. 
Is that problematic given some of the headwinds we have, including our demographics and the aging of our workforce and the fact that we're having less kids on average per family? I mean, you put all of that together. Does that idea of a higher uh, average inflation concern you? Not particularly. I mean, if if we started arguing that it's going to be four or five, yeah, that that would have uh, deep negative ramifications. But Three is not the end of the world, and frankly, while I like low inflation, don't get me wrong, uh, three may be, quote, healthier for the environment and for Fed policy than insisting on two. You've heard me say it before. If they really insist on two, we may need a bad recession to get inflation down to two, Hmm. and that might not be worth it. Yeah, interesting. All right, Bob, you also had a brief comment on the budget deficit and the federal debt. Uh, Obviously, we've talked about this before, and you've said to this point that we can sustain as a nation our debt, although the trajectory is concerning. What do you think uh, is right around the corner, but also what are the longer-term trends that we need to be aware of? So the reason we've said it's been uh, uh, tolerable uh, till uh, recently is that interest rates were low and falling. The reason it's not tolerable is we've had a free lunch, if you will, for years. And with interest rates going up, now we have a problem in interest expense as a percentage of the federal budget or expense as a percentage of GDP. That's a big change. And therefore, along with the debt ceiling crisis of the middle of this year, this issue, the federal debt and deficits, is going to be front and center, unlike it's been in quite a long time. Yeah, interesting, Bob. Well, certainly something to keep an eye on, and I know it's uh, going to be a a hot topic politically as we move forward. All right, despite all of this that we've talked about, Bob, you make the case that really uh, January, February, first two months of the year, the economy has remained fairly resilient to this point, huh? It has, but both real growth, economy, and inflation have been higher than expected uh, for the first couple of months of this year. Uh, We'll see if that's uh, uh, sustainable or not, but uh, that's because a lot of us who said recession before too long and inflation's coming down, not so fast on either of those. Um, Economic growth and inflation, but therefore, if you will, nominal growth to some of the two, has kept corporate revenues reasonably strong. Interesting. All right, Bob, well, I appreciate uh, you weighing in, my friend, as always, and hope you have a great week. We'll talk to you in a week's time. Talk to you next Monday. All right, Bob Dahl, Chief Investment Officer at Crossmark Global Investments. You can learn more or sign up for his Dahl's deliberations at crossmarkglobal.com. All right, let's head back to the phones. Arlene is in Fort Lauderdale, my hometown. Arlene, how can I help you? Yes. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. Yes, I was calling because I have a couple of properties, but one in particular, I owe 57000 on it, and I rent it, but my tenants moved out in July 31st, and I've been trying to upgrade it on the inside because the house was built in the 50s, and I've been okay so far, but I'm running out of cash because I've been using the residual income to actually upgrade. But now it's getting very tight. I'm not sure what to do. Should I take out a loan? Should I go ahead and rent it for next month and not worry about it? I have a couple of prospects that are interested in getting the place. 
Yeah. I just yeah. don't know what to do. I've been tithing. I asked God to give me a certain amount. I wanted a certain amount to give, and I've been successful in doing that. And yes. I'm just so happy about how things are going, but I'm not fearful, but I'm like, I got to be more mindful that I could end up in debt to my ears. Yeah. That's right. Well, you know, the thing that strikes me, Arlene, is that you had it rented. Uh, renters move out. That's not to be, uh, you know, that's not unexpected. And you have, a, you said, a couple of prospects in the wings. So that tells me perhaps, uh, you know, taking a more slow and steady approach to uh, repairing, renovating, updating over time as you have the cash to do it uh, is a better approach than you, you know, taking on some debt at this point, especially especially if you have folks that are you know, willing to rent. And rental prices are still very high right now. If we get into a recession, I could see them coming down. So I think uh, this is an opportunity for you just to move another tenant right in, especially if you don't have the cash on hand to do these renovations. Do you believe that the current state of the property is holding you back? Or do you think you should be able to put somebody back in there you know, at uh, you know, fairly competitive rates? I've asked for twenty six hundred, um, and I've gotten two prospects. One's ready to go in right now. In fact, I've shown it to her. I the floors are wooden, so I had to have a company to do that. I changed all the windows. The hurricane impact, both doors were changed to hurricane impact. I bought, put in two new washers, a new washer and dryer, new bathrooms, and a new kitchen. Wow. So, and now I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is an opportunity for you, Arlene, to hit the pause button. Let's get somebody back into that property after all this great work that you've done. That sounds like a really healthy rental rate, although I'm not surprised given where rental rates are and the fact that we're talking about South Florida. There's not making any more uh, property there in, in South Florida. And uh, so I think you need to take advantage of all the work that you've done and let's get some cash flow going. And perhaps down the road, as you have additional resources, you could do some additional renovations. But I don't see any reason, given what you just described to me, the work that you've done, the fact that you have somebody ready to go, you should borrow any kind of money to do further renovations. You've done some major work there, and it's time for you just to enjoy the benefit of that by getting this property rented again. Okay, that's that's what I was thinking. But then, you know, I just need to paint it. <laughs> pressure keep and paint it. So okay. they're willing to come in and I'll do that next month or the next, do you, next month. Do you have the cash to do that? Not on hand. Okay. Well, I might, I might I even should, say, I listen. I in two months. Yeah, I might, you know, tell them in advance, listen, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I plan to pay it, but it's going to happen over the next year. And, you know, you take your time and get the cash for it before you obligate yourself to do it. I wouldn't borrow. I just don't think you need to. Uh, and this is a great asset that you have. And I just continue uh, to move forward in, on that cash basis without uh, any borrowing. Make a commitment to yourself that you're not going to borrow. You're only going to do further improvements and renovations as the funds are available. Thanks for your call today, Arlene. Quickly to uh, to Montana. Hi, Annie. I have just about 30 seconds left. Go ahead. 
Oh, goodness. Um, sorry, I have a cold. So I have a uh, about a $25,000 loan that I signed on for my daughter's school. It okay. is a private loan, so we cannot um, whatever. But anyway, I'm nearing retirement, and I need to get rid of it. And she yeah. cannot afford to um, refinance. Her credit is not well. I just need to get rid of it. <laughs> Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, unless she has the documented income and the credit worthiness to qualify on her own, a lender is not going to let you out of it without her refinancing and doing that without you. And it doesn't sound like that's going to be easy to do. So I think the key is you stay on it. Let's hope she can continue to pay on it. And as she establishes credit moving forward and gets a job and builds up her credit score, hopefully a year or two down the road, you'd be able to refinance. Stay on the line. We'll talk a little bit more off the air. Folks, thanks for being with us today. Faith and Finance Live is a partnership between Moody Radio and Faith Fi. So thankful for my team today. Couldn't do it without them. You have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.